2: Himalaya, Betsy, Justin. I'm really excited by today's topic, and I'm hoping I can get some free world-class advice from you both. Okay, here wrestling, Naz. <laughs> so I have the Financial Times in front of me. I'm opening the market data pages. So I am seeing numbers to do with the S&P 500. Oh, I think the I see Jones. where this is
0: going. <laughs>
2: The FTSE 100. Then a bit further down, let's see, we have we have bond indices, index linked, ten-year government spreads, high yield, and emerging markets. I've got I've got tons of tables in front of me, some graphs, um, lot, just a lot going on on this page.
1: I like the fact that you're getting organised and you're going to get active with your money, Naz. These are big issues, and it's time to get some research done.
2: Well, I have to say this is all pretty confusing and I've, I've not actually put my money into anything yet, but uh, I'm hoping you could, you could help me navigate some of these graphs and charts and things.
0: Naz, I, I hope you don't have your money under a mattress right now.
1: No, she's just, <laughs> no. the FT does not have a mattress index. And big surprise, Naz, I get questions like this a lot, all economists do, but I'm here to give you some unexpected advice
0: money into stocks and bonds can be a pretty good way of supercharging your savings, but there are plenty of pitfalls along the way, which is why it's important to know a bit more before you move your money from your savings account to other more complicated financial markets like the stock market. The financial sector and financial markets are what we'll be looking at on today's episode of Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson.
1: And I'm Justin Wolfers. This is the podcast where we teach you the super tools of economics that'll transform your life. Nazteran Tevakoli farr and her Financial Times are with us. Naz, <laughs> tell me about your plans. I've
2: been doing quite a bit of research over the past few months. Basically, I've got a bit of money sitting in the bank in a savings account and it's you know earning a little bit of interest, but I feel like I want to get more back and I should be able to put my money somewhere better where it's going to earn me something.
1: So you've discovered the simplest investment vehicle, which is just to leave your money in the bank. The problem with that, of course, is the real return you get. How much more stuff you can buy with that money in the future, it's really low. It's low risk, but it's low return.
0: A bank savings account just doesn't have very much risk. In fact, in some countries, it has no risk because of deposit insurance. And it's pretty liquid, which means that you can walk into your bank today and withdraw all of your money and your bank should be able to give it to you. But those two things together mean you're not going to earn very much interest when you put your money into a savings account.
1: Betsy's just highlighted the two big ideas I want you to be thinking about. The first is risk. What's the chance you lose a lot of money? And liquidity, will you be able to easily and quickly convert your investments into cash without losing much along the way?
2: I'm reading a lot about stocks and bonds. Well, they're the main things that are coming up and the pros and cons of each. So bonds are like loans and stocks are like a percentage of the company.
1: Yeah, let's start with bonds. Bonds are when we lend money to companies or when you lend money to governments and you get paid back with interest.
0: Companies and governments need to raise money, and one of the ways they do this is through issuing bonds. Say Microsoft needs $200 million for money to spend on research for upcoming products. They could go to a bank to borrow $200 million, or they could start issuing bonds. You would buy the bond, which is basically giving the amount you pay for that bond as a loan to Microsoft. The bond states the conditions of the loan, meaning it states when you'll get paid back and how much interest you'll get paid.
2: So if you're a holder of a bond issued by Microsoft, then you're a lender to Microsoft. Now, this sounds kind of weird to me because I don't have that much money and Microsoft is a huge company. So why are they coming to me for a loan?
1: That's the magic of the bond market, Naz. You're going to lend them just a small fraction of what it is that they need to borrow. Microsoft could try asking one lender, say a bank, to borrow that full $200 million, but say something happens to Microsoft and they can't pay it back.
2: Lending $200 million to one person or company is basically a big risk for the lender.
1: Yeah, but what if Microsoft asks to borrow $1,000 instead? Well, if something happens and they can't pay you back, losing 1000 bucks is a much smaller risk. And so when companies or governments issue bonds, they get lots of lenders to each lend them smaller chunks of money. This allows the lenders to spread their risk and be more willing to lend in the first place.
2: So as I'm going through all these tables and charts and things, I'm seeing that governments also issue bonds, and we hear about US treasury bills, which are also called T-bills or treasuries. There's gilts in the UK and bunds in Germany.
1: It's the exact same idea. Just as companies need to borrow money, so do governments, and governments do it through the bond market. So whenever you hear about government debt, remember, the government's not borrowing from a bank. It's raising that money by issuing bonds. Now, there's not much risk in lending to the U.S. government, but they need lots of people to be able to borrow trillions of dollars since no one person could front them, you know, a multi-trillion dollar loan.
2: In a lot of ways, I like the sound of getting into bonds because I like this concept of lending my money to a government so they can spend on a big public infrastructure project or something really important for society. But how worried do I need to be that I'm not going to get my money back? I wouldn't be that
0: worried lending money to a government. But the reality is that whenever you lend money, there's always a risk that you won't get it paid back. One of the main risks with bonds is what we call default risk. So when you think about buying a bond, particularly a corporate bond, you want to try to figure out how risky it's going to be. And the way you can assess that is by using what are called credit ratings. Those ratings are going to tell you how risky that bond is in terms of its ability to get paid back.
2: Yeah. So there's ratings companies like Fitch, Standard & Poor's, Moody's. They put ratings next to bonds. So I'm looking on my tables. There's stuff like AAA, B... C minus, which sound like, sound like grades for a university paper.
0: Yeah, well, it's not that different. I mean, these are going to help you decide if you want to lend or not. Then it's worth remembering that the worse of bonds ratings, that means that we think they might not pay back. So the higher the interest rate the bond needs to offer
2: because they might default. Okay, so these credit ratings are helpful, but the other thing I'm worried about is what if something happens like I have a big family emergency or something and I need my money now. With my money being in a savings account, I can just go to the bank and take my money out, but what if it's tied up in a bond? And also, the bonds I'm seeing, they tend to promise to pay me back in like 7, 10, 20 years time, so quite a long way down the line.
0: Yeah, so I mean, you're right that a bond doesn't have the same liquidity that your savings account has, but Remember last week when I said the stock market is a second-hand market? Well, there's also a second-hand market for bonds. That means you can resell your bond to someone else, and hopefully you'll get a pretty good price. And what do you mean by hopefully? (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't sound that great, right? You're like, "Uh, I would like it to be more like, for sure, I'll get a good price. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, it could be hard to find a buyer, particularly if you're holding a more niche bond from a small company, or if the company's credit rating has been downgraded since you purchased the bond. We call this liquidity risk. Bonds issued by major governments are just not that risky, usually. They tend to be plenty of people who want to buy German bonds or UK gilts or US Treasury bills every single day. But it can be harder to find a buyer to a bond issued by a small company.
1: And so that's the logic for why bonds issued by these big governments tend to be the most stable places to keep your money. U.S. government bonds are the safest investment as the U.S. government always pays its debt.
0: We hope so. (laughs) Look, they can always print more money. I mean, it would be very unusual for the U.S. to default on its debt. But I do feel like every time I say that I should knock wood or something.
1: Yeah. But (laughs) people seem to believe that. And so there's a lot of demand for US Treasuries. And so around $500 billion of them are traded every single day.
2: Wow. That is huge. Okay. So one last thing about bonds. We've talked about risk, but what happens if a company goes bankrupt?
1: If a company declares bankruptcy, then all its assets get sold and they're used to pay off its debts. Now, remember, if you own a bond, you're one of those debts. So bondholders get paid before shareholders. We'll come to shares and shareholders in just a moment.
2: And what about if a company owes more money than it can raise by selling off its assets?
1: Well, then the bondholders will get at least a partial payout and the stockholders will get nothing. That's the risk you hold if you own part of the company.
2: Overall, I'd sum up bonds by saying they seem fairly low risk and relatively stable. You're basically getting your loan back plus interest. And this is pretty low rewards compared to what you could get back on the stock market, which is the other place I've been eyeing up. Okay, it's time to commit.
1: So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
2: Okay, I am now looking at stock market biggest movers and maybe shakers, this section in the in the FT. So in... Japan, I see car companies, Toyota, Mitsubishi, US, uh, we've got Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Pfizer. In the UK, we've got uh, AstraZeneca. It seems like there's a lot of these COVID vaccine makers in these mover and shaker lists. Naz, actually, what I really like about the
0: companies you just listed, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them are companies that actually did pretty well because of the pandemic. And so one of the reasons why you're seeing these big movers is because, like, everybody's staying home and streaming Disney. We've got Amazon, which just was, you know, obviously a big pandemic winner here. I mean, not all of them. You know, we're going to talk about what determines how stock prices change, You know, there's just like a lot of uncertainty about what's that sort of fundamental value of the company. So let's dig into stocks and think about where it comes
2: from. I like the thought of lending to one of these vaccine makers right now, say Pfizer or AstraZeneca.
1: You absolutely want to invest in a vaccine maker 12 months before a pandemic.
0: (laughs) You got to be really careful about trying to think that you have something to add here. So let's back it up and think about what a stock price is all about.
1: What a stock's all about. Naz, what you're discovering is companies have a whole lot of different ways of raising money. They could go to the bank. They could issue a bond. But the other thing they can do is issue stock to the public. That's to people like you and me, Naz.
0: When they issue stock, when it's brand new stock, that's raising money for the company.
1: And if you hold that stock and you then go and sell it on the stock market, that's just reselling secondhand stock.
0: Yep. That's why I said the stock market is just a big second-hand market because most of the stocks you see traded are stocks people already own. It's not raising money for the company. It's just stocks changing hands.
1: So let's say you bought shares in Pfizer, Nas. You'd be getting a tiny fraction of the company. If you bought the right number of shares, maybe you'd own one billionth of Pfizer.
0: If you buy shares in Pfizer, you become a partial owner of Pfizer. Well, if Pfizer makes money, so do you. At the end of the year, Pfizer will tally out its profits. It may decide to pay some portion to you. These are called dividends.
1: And it'll take the rest and reinvest it in creating new vaccines. So some companies pay out dividends really frequently, say every three months or so. Others pay them much more infrequently and instead use their profits to grow the company. But that doesn't cost you money because hopefully that reinvestment will still generate a return for you because if the company becomes more valuable, your shares become more valuable and so you'll still get richer, but only when you sell that stock.
2: By owning shares of the company, do I get other rights? Uh, I'm thinking this because ownership tends to generally give people certain rights.
1: You bet. If you buy stock in Pfizer, you own part of Pfizer. So you'll get to vote in shareholder meetings and often you get to have a say in major decisions like whether Pfizer merges with another company or really big strategic questions like that, not the day-to-day stuff.
2: Now, going back to my list of biggest movers in the Financial Times, there are columns telling me about the closing price and also the day's change in the price. Um, there are also some charts and graphs which you know, show movements in price throughout the day. What's all of this about?
1: That's the other way you can make a profit from owning stock. Some people used to invest because what they were after was dividends. But the other thing that could happen is the value of your shares rise over time. So right now, the outlook's pretty good for vaccine makers like AstraZeneca or Pfizer, and that's why they're on the biggest movers list.
2: Now, I quite liked the idea of bonds. I'm thinking, what are the pros and cons of shares compared to bonds? Well, with shares, you'll profit if the company profits,
0: right? So that's when we were talking about. If you could go back in time before the pandemic, and have bought those shares, the vaccine makers or Amazon, well, those companies just became a lot more valuable now. And that would mean that your shares became a lot more valuable. So you profit when the company profits. If, on the other hand, you'd been thinking, you know what I really want to do is buy some shares in a hospitality company prior to the pandemic, well... You would have been a loser along with the company because that's basically it. You're like a part owner.
1: Higher risk, higher return.
2: And then I'm going to come back to my big concern. Again, what if I have an emergency and I need to get access to my money quickly? Well,
0: you're going to have to go back to that secondhand market the stock market to find someone to buy your shares. But don't worry, shares tend to have pretty high liquidity. And I think you'll be able to find someone to quickly buy your Pfizer shares if you urgently need the cash. The value of those shares, however, is going to depend on what people currently think the value of Pfizer is. So if it's gone up or down since you bought your stocks, it's going to affect whether you sell it for more or less than what you bought it for.
2: Betsy Justin, I want to know what to do with my my small stack of money, so we've just done stocks I'm interested in these graphs that are showing changes in stock prices, and I'm guessing these may be determined by supply and demand.
1: Now at this point you're getting it, everything is determined by supply and demand, including stock prices and so you can think of yourself as both a potential buyer of stocks, you might buy some AstraZeneca. Or a seller, you might think about selling your Pfizer stock.
2: But how do I know if the price is right and if I should be selling my AstraZeneca stocks?
1: The truth is you'll never know. But one way of thinking about it is buying or selling a share all depends on the comparison between its price and its fundamental value. The fundamental value of a stock is the present value of the future profits that the company's going to earn.
2: Yeah, so this goes to the theory that if a company is doing well or their future looks promising, then their share price will rise.
0: Yeah, it sounds complicated, but really you're simply asking yourself how much you think the company's really worth. That worth is about its future stream of profits.
1: So there's really two lenses for thinking about what determines stock prices. In the first instance, it's determined by supply and demand. But buyers and sellers, why are they buying stocks? It's because they value the stream of future profits. And so what really matters, what's driving their behavior, is the net present value of the company's future earnings. So it's all about its future prospects.
2: You're talking a lot about beliefs about a company and how well they're doing now and how well we think they're going to do in the future.
1: I am. And that's because... If there are thousands of people buying and selling stocks and doing their homework, then stock prices will come to reflect all of the different pieces of information that was driving the decision of those buyers and sellers. So this is the idea we call the efficient markets hypothesis, that a company's stock price will come to reflect all publicly available information.
0: So this is a really important idea. So let's say that there's some good news about Pfizer You know, some of the chemicals used to make the vaccine are cheaper, or it turns out the vaccine is more effective than people originally thought. Well, that means that Pfizer's future profitability is likely to be higher. And if it's higher, it means its fundamental value is higher, means its future stream of profits is higher. That means people want to buy stock in Pfizer. It's worth more. And so an analyst who discovers that good news, they want to run out and buy stock in that company with the good news as soon as possible.
2: Yeah, and I see that this will then push the price up.
1: Now, here's the depressing part. This is why it's hard to actually make money trying to cherry pick the perfect stock. It's a lot of work to try to figure out a company's future value, and there are a lot of specialists trying to do it.
0: The reality now is, is is actually tough to beat the market. The efficient market hypothesis doesn't mean that a stock's price is always equal to its fundamental value. I think this is a place where people get confused. But it means that it's impossible to predict if a stock is priced accurately based on publicly available information. And here's the thing, men love to actively trade stocks. Oh, fair go. Eh? But they lose money. On average, all the time. What do you mean
1: by
2: they lose
0: money? Well, they should have just invested passively, which is when you buy an indexed fund. It's called indexed because it's going to give you a tiny little bit of each item in the stock market or the index that you're looking at, say the S&P 500.
2: So you mean that you can only really make money and assess if a stock is over or underpriced if you've got access to some kind of inside information or something?
0: Uh, now that's called insider trading, and it's illegal.
1: The point we're trying to get to is that there are these thousands of highly paid analysts working in all sorts of investment houses, and they're all doing homework to try to predict the future of each of these companies. And the moment they get a skerrick of news, they'll start trading on that information. As a result, it becomes impossible to predict if the price of a stock is going to rise or fall, because if it's going to rise next week, Someone will go ahead and start buying it today rather So it's than...
0: already risen.
1: And that's the problem. So some wise guy's trying to beat you to predicting where the market's going, and as a result, you can't see where it's going.
2: So I've been looking at all these charts and graphs and trying to find a pattern. Do you mean to say that that's not really going to help me?
1: It's not going to help you at all. You can't predict the unpredictable. But the truth is most humans think they can because we're fallible. We like to think that we can spot patterns, that we can find order among the chaos or we can pay the best stock picker to tell us how. It gives us psychological comfort, but it's dead wrong.
2: So if I can't spot any patterns with what's going to happen with Pfizer or Apple's share prices, why would I pay someone a lot of money to make these trades for me?
0: Oh gosh, all the wealth managers and stockbrokers are going to hate us now. But yeah, there's no point in paying them to move your money around to supposedly get the best returns. You might as well hire Orlando the cat.
1: I love this story. A few years ago, there's a British newspaper, The Observer, they ran a stock picking contest and they recruited a bunch of financial experts, some high school students, and a cat called Orlando. And so everyone was given 5,000 pounds at the start of the contest to spend on stocks. And the goal was to see who could create the most valuable portfolio by the end of the contest.
0: There are a lot of these examples out there in the world where, you know, you sort of show that people really skilled can't beat the person doing it randomly. But this is my very favorite example because the random person was not a person. It was Orlando the cat who was picking his stocks by throwing his toy mouse onto a grid with numbers, which represented different companies. So Orlando and his toy mouse picked stocks.
1: And at the end of the year, Orlando's portfolio made 542 pounds in profits, and the professional investors made only 176 (laughs) pounds. So I've got a cat for you, (laughs) Naz. The point here isn't invest through a cat. The point is... Even these super fancy guys in super fancy suits are no smarter than your cat.
0: Look, you just can't waste your time hiring a stockbroker to trade for you. (laughs) Uh, The secret is to just put your money into well-diversified index funds. It's what most economists do with their savings – is you buy an index with all the funds and say, the S&P 500 index or, say, the FTSE 100 index, you get a well-diversified portfolio and you just leave your money there to grow.
2: I, I really like the sound of this, actually.
1: That's the power of the efficient markets hypothesis. We learned that we can't predict future stock performance. We learned to be humble so we keep things simple.
0: Another tip is to pick a fund with the smallest fees, so that you can keep more of your profits. That's really, really important because there are a lot of people out there. They're going to charge you a lot of money to do a lot of trading. They're not going to make you any money from that trading, and they're going to siphon off a lot of your
2: savings. You know, this is all actually quite a big relief to hear because whilst I've been enjoying going through going through the FT every day and looking at all these charts and uh, you know trying to work out patterns and things, it also kind of seems pretty stressful. Either I've got to spend time trying to find patterns in the chaos or I've got to pay someone to make all these trades for me and I don't really fancy either of those.
1: My advice, Naz, is think like an economist and don't bother with all of that. This will be the hardest advice for many of our listeners to take because there are thousands of people being paid millions of dollars in order to convince you that they're smarter than the market. But the hard reality is when we look at their performance, they do no better than Orlando the Cat.
2: Let's see, you, Justin, that was really helpful. I'm actually going to put some of my money into index funds, but I do still want to buy some government bonds too.
0: You know, bonds aren't quite as sexy as stocks, but they can be pretty effective. If you buy bonds which mature in, say, 20 or 30 years' time, remember interest compounds. So you earn interest on interest and so on, and the next thing you know, you've doubled your money. Basically, you're reinvesting what you earn, So you need to start early and keep reinvesting your gains, and then you'll be left with a really secure fund for your retirement
1: years. Albert Einstein is once reported to have said that the most powerful force on Earth is the power of compound interest. Thanks
0: for listening.
1: There's a lot more from this show and others like it on the Himalaya Learning platform.
0: Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app on the go.
1: For exclusive content, including bonus episodes and supplemental materials, go to Himalaya.com/econ and enter promo code econ at checkout for your first 14 days free.
0: Himalaya.com/econ has loads of great shows like ours, so try it out using the promo code econ at checkout to get your first 14 days free. It's time
1: to think like an economist.
2: Look around; you can find cars like these on Auto Trader.